Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And welcome to On The Ledge podcast, episode 152. It's Leaf Botany, part three. I hope you're still feeling the effects of last week's relaxation episode. But this week, we're back to some modern day plant advice. Plant ecologist Dr. Julia Cook joins me to talk about the role of silicon in plants. You have to say that carefully. Silicon in plants, not silicon in plants. That's a very different kind of podcast. I'll also be answering a question about brown marks on leaves. And we'll be hearing from listener MW. Thank you to Laura Ellie and Plantsman Mo and Kuyoiki in the US for some five star reviews for the show. And thank you to those of you who have joined the Patreon clan in the last couple of weeks. That's Adele, Julia, Molly and Michelle who haven't formed a girl band. No, they've all become five dollar patrons and therefore legends. And Lydia, who's become a crazy plant person. Thanks also to Claire, who gave a one-off donation on code-fi.com. Instructions on how to do all of those things are in the show notes. And there's a new option on Patreon now to pay annually, which gives you two months free. So do check that out. I'll be putting a post out for existing patrons to explain how that works. But if you're a new patron, you can opt to pay annually when you join and you will save two months, as I say. So if you prefer to do it that way, it saves me on costs for transactions and it just means less hassle for you. So Check that out if that's of interest. Thanks for all your deliciously wonderful feedback on previous recent episodes. Somebody commented on my Instagram post about the On The Ledge Manifesto that it would make a great poster. Hmm, this has got my mind whirring as it often does. Thinking forward to the physical mail out that I send out to patrons at in the month of December, the festive mail out. I'm wondering whether... Hmm, could I think about some way of incorporating that? If you've got a good idea for what I should do for that mail out, it might be some other form of card or I don't know. I'm I'm open to suggestions on that front. I know it seems a long way off the month of December, but hey, it's coming. Before we know it, we will be thrown into the throes of winter. I know involuntary shudder everybody but we do have to face it and if you've got any ideas about that mail out and what you'd like me to send then do let me know 
I've also been putting out a few of Perone's plants, the video series on Instagram where I talk about plants that I own and uh, you get to see my smiling face and also my extensive brooch collection and had a message on one of those videos. It was my Hoya Kerii video from Kristen who said that she just got to a safe spot after evacuating from fires in California and she was very happy to see Perone's plants after 24 hours of non-stop fire footage and evacuation orders and she says I hope my plant babies are safe. Well so do I Kristen and to any other listeners who are in California facing evacuation or other horrible things connected to those fires. I wish you all well and I do hope that your plants are okay Kristen and delighted that I can offer you a little bit of light relief in the form of Perone's plants because that's what it's all about. I also have covered recently the silver dollar vine Xerosicus dangui so if you want to learn about that plant do go and check out my Instagram where I'm at j.l.perone. I'm also very excited because I have the new shelving in my office is up and running and I've just received the LED lights that are going to light it up. They aren't officially grow lights, but uh, they will be adding to the, the general atmos and hopefully providing a bit of useful spectrum for my plants. I shall be doing a video on that once I've got it all set up and it's very, very exciting. My office still looks like a bit of a tip but one day it'll be tidy i'm sure you all know this feeling it's getting there and it's feeling a little bit less crowded now i've got rid of the uh, rather oversized bookshelf full of my husband's records so don't worry they've gone into the house and they've got their own bespoke system and it's all lovely so don't feel too sorry for my husband <laughs> Just a quick word about merch you can buy on the ledge merchandise did you know that i hope you do if you go to my website janeperone.com and just click on the shop link in the top right hand corner it should take you to Spreadshirt either in the US or in the UK where you can buy everything from tank tops to t-shirts to hoodies to tote bags all emblazoned with the On The Ledge logo or alternatively with the Jane and Wolfie design that was last year's festive card. It's worth checking out it's a way of rewarding yourself with a bit of bit of uh, merch from your fave pod but also it helps support the show because a good wodge of the cash goes to me so yeah if you do buy some do take a photo and send it to me or at me and I would love to see you wearing your on the ledge merch and tell me what you think of it and if you're a Twitter maven, then don't forget about Houseplant Hour, 9 o'clock BST, that's 5pm EDT. You'll have to work out when that is in your time zone, if that is neither of your time zones. But it's on a Tuesday, 9pm uh, BST, and I would love you to join me to talk about houseplants. It's just an escape from the rest of the world and a chance to show off your beauties and ask for advice and generally shoot the breeze with other houseplant people. So do join me for that every week. You get bonus points if you turn up and you're an On The Ledger listener. Well, that's quite enough waffling from me. Let's hear from this week's listener. My name is M.W. Bartlett, and I live in Western Massachusetts in the United States. I've been enjoying Jane's podcast for a couple of years, 
and uh, my father's mother used to work at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and my dad, although he was a pathologist, also loved and cared for plants all his life. And I inherited their love for plants, as has my oldest daughter. Question one. There's a fire and all your plants are about to burn. Which one do you grab as you escape? I would save my one little cactus pup from my red-headed Irishman cactus. The original plant belonged to my grandmother and was over 60 years old. But last year it got rot because I watered it more often than my dad had told me to. <laughs> and I lost the whole thing except for six pups, with which I tried various rooting methods and only one little pup survived. Question two. What is your favorite episode of On the Ledge? This may sound crazy, but my favorite episode was a soundscape that Jane did in her potting shed. Sounds are very important to me, and they can be either painful or soothing, and that one was really wonderful to listen to. Question three. Which Latin name do you say to impress people? Uh, well, I don't say it to impress people, really, but I like to say Syngonium potophyllum because there are so many common names for that plant that for me and my daughter, when we're talking about plants, it's easier to say the Latin for that one. Question four. Crassulation, acid metabolism, or gutation? Uh, gutation, definitely. It is beautiful, especially when there's some light coming in um, through the window behind the drop of water at the end of a leaf. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monstera or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? I would say I'd rather spend the money on cacti. I love cacti, especially weird ones. The stranger, the better. And I'm really not a big fan of variegated plants. So there's my answer. love about Meet the Listener is that everybody's answers are so different. So if you'd like to contribute, drop me a line on theledgepodcast.gmail.com. And who knows, we could be hearing what you think about gutation very soon. Let me ask you a question. What is a leaf made of? And I think probably most of us would say when asked this question, Maybe we'd say carbon, maybe we'd say water, nutrients, cellulose. But I think very few of us would mention silicon. And yet silicon can make up up to 10% of a leaf's dry mass. But what exactly is silicon and what role does it play in the life of our leaves? In this third part of my occasional leaf botany series, I'm joined by a plant ecologist that spent a lot of her career finding out what silicon is all about. My name's Julia Cook. I'm a plant ecologist. I think of myself as a plant functional ecologist because I'm interested in the role that different species play in ecosystems. I work at the Open University as a lecturer, so my job is a mixture of teaching and research and public outreach. A really super obvious question to start. What exactly is silicon? Yeah, I think silicon is, is sort of coming into its its moment a bit in terms of plants. So I'm not surprised that you haven't heard too much about it, but I hope uh, I hope you will in future even more. Uh, so silicon is one of the elements. It sits on the periodic table below carbon. And it doesn't usually exist just as plain silicon on earth. It's, it's often silica. Glass is, is silica. 
or in solution. So it's as silicic acid in, in water. So it's, it's often associated with oxygen. And then when it dissolves, it's, it's sort of as, as a component of water, but it's very, very abundant on earth in the, in the earth's crust. It's the second most abundant element after oxygen. So silicon oxygen together as silica are, are everywhere really. Do all plants contain silicon? And is it something that's concentrated in particular plant tissues or is it just spread around the whole plant? Yes, it is in all plants, but the amount in plants varies enormously. So some plants have, have just minuscule amounts, whereas others can have, um, up to 10% or even more in their, in their plant tissue. So 10% of their dry mass is a lot. This is, <laughs> this is enormous amounts. If you think about how much nitrogen or phosphorus is in a plant, the amount of silicon or silica can really exceed that. So some of the plants that are really big accumulators are things like horsetails. You can always feel how grainy and um, they are when you run your hands up some some of the horsetails or the equisetum. And some people actually use them as uh, sandpaper because they've got so much silica in them. Uh, another family that has loads of silicon is the the grasses. Some grasses more than others, but most grasses have quite a bit of silicon. And sometimes you run your finger up a grass blade and you get like a little paper cut. And that is because the edge of the grass has a whole lot of little silica deposits on there. And that's designed to, um, as a herbivore defense, to sort of damage the mouth parts of animals and stop animals eating it. But we see that as a paper cut on our fingertips. That is amazing. 10%. That's quite, as you say, that's that's a lot of silicon. So what, what, what's the role? Obviously, as you say, some plants have got more than others. What, what, what's the purpose of the silicon that's in our plants? It's a great question because we're still learning about that. I guess the, the simplest way to describe it is it seems to help plants manage a whole range of stresses. Um, so it's, its main role seems to be in stress alleviation. So those stresses can be biotic or um, caused by things that are alive or can be abiotic so caused by by sort of environmental factors so looking at uh, the the biotic stresses so plants get eaten a lot by animals and look for ways to or have evolved a number of ways to defend themselves and silicon can be very important there for some animals so uh, things like stinging nettles uh, when you get stung by a stinging nettle the sting is essentially a, a little silica needle that uh, that injects a toxin into your skin. So without the silica, you probably wouldn't get stung by a stinging nettle. They can be very abrasive. So surfaces can can be very abrasive and damage the mouth parts of insects and possibly mammals. Uh, there can be layers of silicon within a leaf that prevent animals from chewing or, or or eating them as much as they might if there was no silicon. So plants use silicon quite a lot as a herbivore defense and. And some researchers have found that once a plant is attacked by herbivores, some plants are able to then take up more silicon to protect themselves when they're under attack. So it can be an induced, an induced defense. On the other side, looking at the environmental factors, silicon has, has been shown to help a lot of different stresses. So water stress, salt stress. It can help manage nutrient imbalances, um, help manage wind stress all sorts of things. If a plant's stressed, adding silicon generally helps. So as a houseplant grower, this obviously immediately makes me think of my own uh, selfish world and, um, and think about whether I need to worry about the silicon in my plants and the amount. I have seen some fertilizers for houseplants recently advertising include silicon and making this, making a big play of this. But is that something that's worth considering? How do plants usually get their silicon in the first place? 
So that's really interesting that you've noticed that change. And I don't know if that's uh, because people making the fertilizers have appreciated the importance of silicon now or and are adding more silicon or whether they're reporting silicon that was always there. I'm not sure. Certainly silicon is applied a lot as a fertilizer in agricultural systems, particularly in rice and sugarcane, where as, as crops are harvested and things, people are removing silicon from the system and depleting the available silicon. So it's, it, it's becoming increasingly popular as in fertilizers. In terms of, uh, indoor plants, I don't know if there's been a lot of work looking at, uh, indoor plants specifically, but I know there's a lot of work looking at hydroponics and, and sort of indoor crop plants where, uh, silicon is routinely added and, and, and very important. Uh, so, uh, I think you also ask, uh, how plants, uh, obtain silicon. So plants take up silicon through the roots as uh, dissolved in the in the soil solution or the water solution, so as silicic acid, um, and then that goes through the the transpiration stream and then is deposited all throughout the plant. Often um, there's more in leaves or the shoots and the leaves of plants, but there can be high silicon deposits in roots and bark and and wood and all sorts of places in the plant. One of the things when I've been sort of reading around on the internet is I noticed that it comes up a lot for um, cannabis websites. And I guess that's one of the areas of, should we say, indoor crops where people are trying to maximise their yields. And it certainly seems to be something that cannabis growers are hot on. So perhaps, as is often the case with houseplants, a lot of these trends and ideas come from the the cannabis growing industry and then kind of trickle down to houseplants so i'd be, it'd be interesting to know if that is the case uh in with with this one but yeah certainly i've seen a couple of uh fertilizers that advertise they contain silicon i guess in a pot there's more of a chance as you say that the silicon is going to be depleted i mean would there be a reasonable amount of silicon in an average potting mix that you might get but but that would be depleted over the course of of the plant's life presumably if it sat in the same pot for several years different soils have different amounts of silicon in them in total but they also vary in how much silicon is available for plants so something like a basalt that's quite uh, a basalt derived soil that might be quite new might have a lot of silicon that's available but a very old soil that's heavily leached won't have much silicon available and then in potting mixes, I guess it depends what's in there and how much organic matter's in there and what that organic matter is. Because the way silicon returns to the soil is when the, the plant dies and decomposes, the silicon in the plant material is released back into the soil. And that recycles quite quickly, actually, and can be a better source of silicon than weathering rock surfaces. And the, the way it's recycled is, is really lovely because when silicon's deposited, it often forms the shape of the cell that it occupies or the gap between the cells that it's filled. And so the, the silica bodies that form in plants are often diagnostic of the type of plants that make them. And these plant bodies or plant stones are known as phytoliths. And so when the organic component decomposes, which is often quite fast, often this silica part can persist for much longer. So archaeologists are actually quite interested in using these phytoliths or silica bodies to recreate past environments and things like that. So in in, in house plant soils, I, I guess it really depends 
what the material in the soil is um, and whether there's, I mean, it could be quite high if there's lots of organic matter in there and there's phytoliths dissolving and recycling. Um, but over time, I, I think, you know, over a long time, I think you find it was depleted. Why is it that silicon's been a bit of a mystery up till till recently? Is it just one of those things that people haven't bothered studying or is there any other reason? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of reasons. I suppose there's, there's sort of so much around that it, it wasn't clear that it might be limited in some areas and perhaps only becomes limited in in places like rice paddies where um, it might be an area that's been cropped for hundreds and hundreds of years and and with the same crop and the same removal of um, of of grains and things that you see a depletion um, and in in most systems there's just enough silicon around that people haven't noticed whereas when there's low nitrogen or low phosphorus it's very clear very quickly. Um, I think also for a long time people thought silicon was was just a waste product. Plants couldn't help taking it up and they had to do something with it. So they just deposited it in their leaves and it was just sort of a storage thing because plants didn't know what else to do with it. But, I mean, plants don't do that, do they? They don't just think, oh, I'll just stick this somewhere as a waste product. They're highly optimised. Um, they've evolved to, to manage uh, incredible situations and they really just do things because. So uh, I think there were sort of misunderstandings about what silicon might do. What's left to learn about silicon? Obviously, there's lots of different avenues of research right now, but what, what are the key things that people don't yet know? I think we still have an enormous amount to understand about um, how plants use silicon and the value of silicon for plants. But some of the really big questions, I think, for me are, firstly, what are the costs of silicon for plants? So we're, we're getting a really good understanding of some of the benefits and why plants do take up and use silicon to, to help protect against herbivores and to, to manage a whole lot of stresses. But if, if silicon was so amazing, then why isn't silicon present in all plants in huge amounts? So there have to be some costs and we haven't quantified those costs in the same way that we've, um, quantified the benefits. So, um, we need to, we need to add in that part of the picture. Um, I think we also read a lot that, uh, silicon is a structural component. So there's some kind of classic studies. Um, from a long time ago about growing horsetails, which have so much silicon in them without silicon. And they, they just don't stand up in the same way. They're dependent on silicon for their, their kind of structure. Um, and so people have sort of taken this and, and run with it and said, plants have a structural role. I mean, silicon has a structural role in plants, but beyond the horsetail studies, there's actually very little evidence. So we don't, we don't understand that. And the final big thing, big question for me, is the relationship between silicon and carbon. So in nature, we don't see any chemical bonds between silicon and carbon, um, or even silicon and carbon with an oxygen in between. So they don't really interact with each other very closely. And yet, you know, we know how important carbon is in plants and that everything has these big sort of organic molecules in it. So how does the silicon fit into that picture? I think that's a really fascinating thing to find out too. I think it's brilliant that uh, we're seeing silicon pop up more frequently when we're talking about plants. And I think that will increase as we understand that plants use silicon and need silicon. And so going back to um, what you said earlier about noticing that silicon's popping up on fertilizers, I think it's just so exciting and so brilliant. And, and hopefully when people are talking about nitrogen and phosphorus, they will increasingly see silicon creep in there indeed well thank you so much julia for sharing your knowledge with us and yeah i'm, I'm 
I think everyone will probably be now be checking the back of their fertilizer bottle to see if silicon is mentioned. <laughs> Thanks so much to Julia for joining me. And if you're wondering what that fertilizer that I mentioned was that had highlighted the presence of silicon, it's called Plant Magic. It's not a product I've tried. It's something I saw online or on a shelf somewhere. And it's, I think, mainly used by hydroponic growers. But do have a look at your fertilizers and let me know if any are selling themselves on the basis of silicon because it would be really interesting to know. And if there's any other topics you'd like me to cover in this leaf botany series, do let me know. Part four is going to be about pigment. So if that's something you've been wondering about, hang on because we'll get into that in our next leaf botany special. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. And now it's time for question of the week. And this one is in response to a couple of different queries that I've had recently about brown spots on leaves. Now, I have to admit that my heart slightly sinks when I see a question like this, because there are so many different things that can cause damage to leaves from physical. So your cat having a claw at your plant or that toddler who's so fascinated by the leaves, they decide to tear a hole in them to fungal conditions and of course, pests. And that makes diagnosing brown leaf problems quite tricky. Barry got in touch with a question about a newly unfurled philodendron brillietii leaf and found that there was a translucent spot that feels almost like a blister on the leaf. Meanwhile, someone called Lobsterpot got in touch on Instagram with a very similar question about a calathea because theirs was suffering some browning damage. And looking at the pictures of these very different plants, it occurred to me that the problem was still the same. And it's this, lots of us have been experiencing very, very hot days and intense sun. It's the time of year in the Northern Hemisphere for that to happen, but it can totally catch you out if you are a new person to plants and in fact it's still catching me out to this day what am I saying it's one of those things that does happen your plant is in the same position it's always been and suddenly it's getting burnt what's going on well when the sun is really intense even plants that have been used to that particular setting when you get those really incredibly bright days can suffer from sunburn particularly those young leaves that haven't really had a chance to build up much of a resistance against the strong sunlight. And bam, 
brown spots are the result. The other aspect of sunburn damage is that the plant struggles more when it's very, very dry. So if you've got plants that have got really dry soil plus really intense sunshine, that is the worst case scenario and the most likely case for sunburn. What's happening when the leaf gets sunburned? Well, it's basically the pigment chlorophyll is just being destroyed by the, the, the strength of the sun. And you end up with these kind of like blistery, brown, bleachy areas. And gradually, as they dry out, they'll become sort of like um, like tish brown tissue paper, basically. The other thing that tends to happen is that people will have a lovely cactus or succulent which is doing really nicely on their sunny windowsill and they'll think oh I'll give my plant a treat and I'll take it outdoors and put it in my sunniest corner of my patio or balcony or whatever and then suddenly the plant looks very distressed and is covered in brown marks and it's mysterious because of course that plant's a cactus or a succulent and they live in highlight conditions. So how can this be happening? Well, in that case, the plant is adapted to the environments that you've had it in for many weeks or months and suddenly moving it to the sunniest spot in your outside space is a very, very different environment. And you will find that a lot of plants will burn, even if they're desert plants. It's like me sitting inside with no sun exposure for six months and then going outside into my garden and sitting there at one o'clock in the afternoon for an hour and expecting that my small amount of Italian genes are going to save me from being burnt. Not the case. Whereas if I had been slowly building up my sun exposure over many months and then I went outside and sat outside in the garden, I'm less likely to turn out looking like a bright red lobster. In fact, as Lobster Pop replied on her Instagram, the sun truly is a deadly laser. Skincare and plant care communities agree on this point. Indeed. So when you've got plants inside and they're in exactly the same spot, but it's a very, very intense period of hot weather, it is worth considering moving them to a more shady spot. And if you've got highlight plants like cacti and succulents and you want to move them outside you do need to do that gradually move them to a shady spot first because the intensity of the sun outside is far greater than it is inside inside there's lots of things blocking that light from coming through at full pelt outside none of that protection exists you can also get more wind damage outside um, and then that's adding to the plant's distress too so for indoor plants that you decide to move outside, just gradually increase the exposure, start them off in a shady spot outside. And indoor plants, move them somewhere in less light. There are things you can do if you don't want to move your plant. If you've got a particularly big specimen and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't, haven't got anywhere else to put this, then you can always do things like putting an old neck curtain over it that's not going to be heavy enough to do any damage to the plant but is just going to filter out that strongest light during the heat of the day. Obviously you can also pull curtains or blinds or any kind of barrier stuck in front of your plant that, that will protect it from the heat of that sun when you've got when you know you've got a heat wave coming and the sun's going to be particularly intense. 
And the sad news with sunburn or indeed any other form of leaf damage really is that the leaf is not going to recover. The leaf will always look like that. Now in a plant like a rosette forming succulent, in a way that's the best case scenario because the way the rosette grows, the leaves that are damaged are gradually going to grow outwards and then can be removed. If you've got something like a Swiss cheese plant, then it's a toss up as to whether you cut away that leaf and remove it altogether or just leave it there and let other new leaves come along and cover over the embarrassing uh, burns. It's really up to you how you want to deal with it and how bad the damage is. If you're worried about identifying the difference between leaf damage and browning caused by lack of humidity and leaf damage through sunlight, usually the sunlight damage is kind of anywhere on the leaf but the humidity damage will normally be at the tips or sometimes the edges of the leaf so that's generally how you can tell what's been going on and how do you know that your plant is in a position where it's going to get sunburnt in the first place well you if you've got a light meter of any kind then you can measure the different lights in different areas of the room but really you can just use your eyes and your observational skills to observe this Obviously, the first thing to say is, is it south facing? That's going to be the most intense sun coming from that direction. West facing is second strongest, then east facing, then north facing. But it's also a question of how big the window is, whether there's any obstacles in the way. So, for example, if you've got bookshelves that are blocking the light from coming in and making a plant further away not get so much light or if you've got uh, net curtains or any kind of blinds up at the window all of those will be taking away light from the plant. I guess the lesson of all of this is that you just can't sit on your laurels when it comes to your house plants. Things are changing all the time from the seasons to your own individual plants stage of growth so vigilance is all. Keep a close eye on your plants and you'll notice any changes quickly and be able to respond. Obviously, life doesn't always allow that to be the case. So don't beat yourself up when your plant gets a little bit sunburnt or picks up a few bugs. The main thing is how you respond to those challenges and get your house plants back on track. That's all for this week's show. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Julia Cook, and to my listener, MW, for joining me this week. I'll be back next Friday with another episode, but until then, I'm channeling the words of the Eagles. Take it easy, take it easy. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. See you next Friday. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gukana by Samuel Corwin, and Sundown by Josh Woodward. The ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. Music